Father God, we recognize that by nature our hearts are hard. Our minds are dim. And we don't love the truth. Instead, we run after lies. So, Father, just as we've just sung, please, would your truth break through? Would it expose the lie, the lie in our hearts, the lie in our church, the lie in our culture? And we pray, Lord, that as we heard from last week, that this grace, this good news would do good in our lives, in our church, in our community. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A true story is told, I heard about it recently, about a young minister who was asked to take a funeral. It was a, of a, a war veteran who, who had died. And this was his very first funeral. He was a young minister, had never done it before. So you can imagine, he, he was slightly nervous. He, he sort of overplanned everything. It was a new building, everything was new. Meticulously worked everything out to the, to the detail, really. Inwardly, he was quite nervous, but he wanted to put on a good show. He wanted to look confident, look like he knew what he was doing. When he uh, arrived on the day, all his plans were sort of thrown up in the air because just before the service, some of the, uh, some of the, the, the man who, who died, some of his friends who were also in the military, they came up to him and said, look, we, we want to have a part in, in the service. So would you mind if, if, instead of the pallbearers carrying the coffin out at the end, would you mind if we do that? And, and, and would love it if you, could, if you could lead us out, if you could lead the procession out and, and we, could have it, like, we could pause at the back for a solemn moment and then if you could just lead us out through the, the side door there on the left. And the young minister was like, oh, yes, yes, yeah, fine. Yeah, I can do that. That's fast, fine. And that's what he did. He proceeded to do that. But the effect was somewhat marred when he picked the wrong door. And so the congregation watched with some confusion as he led them with military precision into a broom cupboard, upon which time they beat a hasty retreat outward, outwards, and it was all very confusing and all very awkward. The lesson there is this. If you're going to lead, make sure you know where you're going and if you're going to follow make sure you follow someone who knows what they're doing because it's all too easy isn't it it's all too easy to choose leaders who look really impressive who, who look confident who look like they know what they're doing but they'll actually lead us in entirely the wrong direction As such leaders we know they can wreck a business can't they they can, they can tank a political party but in churches their capacity for damage is far, far greater. Now, this is why Paul is writing to his friend and colleague Titus. The apostle had brought the truth of the gospel to this pagan island of Crete. And as we heard last week, if you were here, this is a culture full of lies. And so Paul brought to them the word of truth, the truth which transforms but the problem is that Paul's now gone. The apostle's gone. And, and so the question becomes, in Paul's absence, how will the truth of the gospel continue to go out on the island? How will the church continue to be transformed by the truth with Paul now elsewhere? And the answer is there in verse 5. Do you look down with me? Verse 5. The reason I left you, Titus, in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul wants Titus to appoint trustworthy men who will teach the trustworthy truth. And that's our first point. Well, we announced in August, didn't we, that Tom Watts will be joining us here as the senior minister. And since then, I've been barraged with lots of questions about him. Yeah, is he good at this? Is he good at that? Is he interested in, in this area of ministry? 
Well, it's fascinating from these verses, isn't it? They're far, far, far above competency. Paul is concerned with character. Look at verse 6. An elder must be blameless. A husband of one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Paul's criteria for church leadership begins with his trustworthiness at home. Now, of course, the apostle isn't ruling out single men like himself out of ministry. He can't be doing that. But, but he's saying if, if the elder is married, which would be the norm, of course, then he must be faithful to his wife. If he does have kids, then he needs to show that he can pastor them. And the reason for this is that the, the minister's family is, is like a microcosm of the church family. So if he isn't trusted there, then why should he be trusted here? If he isn't able to discipline there, then why should he be able to discipline here? So friends, never, ever, ever separate a minister's private life from his public ministry. There, there is no real division. I think in this regard, we're, we're held to a higher standard. Paul says we must be blameless, not perfect. You guys know me too well to know I'm not perfect. Not, bl- not perfect, but blameless, above accusation. A practical implication for this is that you should know that you are not my first priority. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. In ministry, there's always more people I could go visit. There's always um, more work I could do on my sermon. And if I'm forced to choose, as I'm sometimes forced to choose, I, I will choose Hannah and the children over you. But ironically, that is the best thing for you. Because if my home life is healthy then the church life will be healthy. If, if my home life is in a complete mess, then, then the church life will be in a complete mess, won't it? I, I, come across, I come across way too many people whose dads were in ministry, but as they've grown up, their dad seems to prioritise the church over them. And the result of that, they, they, feel, they grow up feeling neglected. They, they, they go into adult life withholding all sorts of resentment and bitterness. And there's loads of people in our church like this, and particularly in the morning service. They, they, you see that they're perpetually sitting at the edges of the fellowship. They're, they're burned because of their experiences. Now, Jonathan Fletcher, who, who spoke at our weekend away last year, he said that when he, whenever he's praying for a church, above everything else, he prays for the minister's marriage, and rightly so. Well, in verse 7, Paul moves from talking about the minister's trustworthiness in the home to his trustworthiness in the church. Look at verse 7. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, or a far better translation would be, since an overseer is entrusted with God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, from the stories I read, from the books I've read, from the experiences of ministry over the past 12 years, I reckon this is the single biggest, most common error which ministers fall into. And that is that they start to believe that the church belongs to them. It's so, so common. And when that happens, all these things here in verse 7 follow on. It's so easy for me to become domineering and overly controlling because it's my church. It's uh, easy to make everything about propping up my insecurities because it's my church. It's easy to get angry when someone disagrees with a strategic decision I might make because it's my church. It's 
easy to get despondent and then to escape into the bottom of a bottle when I don't get my own way. Because it's supposed to be my church. The thing I need to remember is it's not my church. It's the Lord's church. I'm a lowly steward. I've simply been entrusted, verse 7, entrusted with God's household, his family. And and if I've grasped that, look what happens then in verse 8. Rather, it's positively, rather he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. See, a minister who knows he's been entrusted with God's very family, well, of course he's going to open up his home to them because you're my family, mi casa e su casa, whatever they say. Of course I'm going to desire what's good for you, not necessarily what you want, but what's good for you, in the same way I desire what's good for Chloe and, and Caleb. Of course I'm going to work hard for you, I'm going to be disciplined because... Because I love you, even if no one else sees it or appreciates it. So friends, please pray for me and pray for Tom uh, when he arrives in January. uh, That we would always remember that it's not our church. And it's not your church. It's the Lord's church. Well, in verse 9, notice Paul finally gets around to talking about what the minister's actually to do. uh, Namely, his trustworthiness to teach. Look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, no deviation, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now these days we're always looking for multifunction gadgets, aren't we? I came across the following uh, in, my, in my research this week. First of all, we have the, um, the TV toaster. Never again will you have to uh, whittle away those idle moments, just uh, twiddling your thumbs while you make your toast. You can now watch TV. Just don't put in more than one slice because it will overheat and explode. Uh, so it doesn't make great toast. Um, what, about, what about this one? The gun phone. Perhaps for the uh, gun-toting Americans amongst us, you'll never have to carry a gun and a phone at the same time until you accidentally shoot yourself in the head. Or what about this one? This is my favourite. The uh, ultimate Swiss army knife. Look at that. It literally does everything. Yes, it does everything badly. Imagine trying to peel an apple with that bad boy. It would be completely, completely unwieldy. Well, so it is that many of us, we, we want our pastor, our minister to do absolutely everything and be everyone. We want him to be a proven business leader. We want him to be a brilliant growth expert. We want him to be an experienced marriage counsellor. I don't know what you might add to the the very top of your wish list uh, for Tom when he arrives in January. Now, all those things are good. They're desirable things even, good things. But here in Titus, at least, he's only got one job, one essential job. He's got to be able to faithfully teach Paul's gospel and not move away from it. That, That trustworthy message of eternal life that we heard about last week. So friends, if you, if you expect the minister to do absolutely everything, just like those inventions, they'll do everything, but really badly. And they won't do their main job well. But we might think, well, oh, well, what about, there must be such huge pressing needs on the island of Crete. There must be so many things these elders must, uh, have got to get their hands dirty with. So why does Paul focus only on this? Why, why just this teaching role? Why is that the task of preaching the truth of grace so urgent? Well, we see our second point. 
because the church has been invaded by legalistic liars. To contrast the trustworthy truth, Satan has flooded the area with legalistic liars. Look at verse 10. Four, there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, you might expect that on a pagan island of Crete, the big threat to the church will come from out there, right? That's probably what we're thinking. The lying, licentious culture seeping in. That's the big problem, right? No. The surprise. The surprise here is the biggest threat to the Cretan church is from within. Teachers who have not stuck to the trustworthy message Paul had given them. And again, and again, we, we like to imagine, don't we, that false teachers are always really easy to spot. They always drive gold-plated cars, don't they? They always uh, have the, the sort of neon sign, Andy Palmer Ministries, or, or something like that. They usually have tiny little devil horns just, just popping out their hair. We like to think they're very easy to spot. But in Crete, they weren't. They were very religious, and like the serpent in the garden, very persuasive. It seems they had been going from house to house where the churches had met, teaching these newly converted pagans that God's grace, God's undeserved kindness is not enough to save them. Instead, you've also got to be circumcised. You've you've also got to observe all the Jewish food laws. Then, and only then, might you be considered pure or clean before God. It kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? But... We see legalism being taught up and down our land even today. We come across churches, I'm sure you know them, churches where the main emphasis of the whole service is is rituals and dressing up, but the sermons are utterly void of gospel truth. We come across ministers who happily baptize or bless anything or anyone, regardless of whether there's any discernible faith in that family. I'm sure we've all been to funerals where the the minister there has assured us that the deceased is in heaven, even though we all know the deceased had no interest whatsoever in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, false teaching always masquerades as genuine Christianity. And it always looks impressive. It always makes a show. But by subtly shifting that hope off Jesus Christ, the eternal hope that we heard about last week. Instead, they're shifting our hope onto ourselves and our religion, our morality. And friends, read your papers. It's ruining churches and it's ruining our land. It might look very impressive, some of these ministries, but it's lies. And lies in verse 12 have to be called out. Look at verse 12. Even one of their own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. You might think, oh, Paul, sounding a bit harsh there, a bit edgy. But friends, you should be worried if, 
if the preacher you're regularly sitting under never says anything which might challenge you, never says anything which upsets you, never says anything which might offend you, too, too many ministers don't want to say anything unpopular. And because of that, the congregation falls into lies. If I really cared for a false teacher, I will go and meet them and I'll challenge them, as Paul does here, in order to restore them. And more than once I've had to do that in the past few years. If I really love you, then I'll beat away the wolves and I'll warn you about the wolves. That's loving. Because look what happens in verse 15 if that doesn't happen. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. See, friends, this is the irony about legalism, you see. Legalism, rather than promoting purity in the church, it actually creates corruption. See, if I, if I think I'm made pure before God by what I do, then I'll be concerned with mainly just looking pure before others. So I'll think, well, I come on a Sunday, so I can be a complete tyrant midweek in the office. I might say, oh, I'm on an important committee at church, so... I don't need to work at being kind or gentle or meek. I might say, oh, I've got fantastic evangelical pedigree. So it doesn't matter if I'm a monstrous husband. If legalistic lies have the power to deform us, then the truth of God's grace has the power to transform us. We're going to develop this idea in coming weeks, but... If, if we know we've been saved alone by what Christ has done for us on the cross, if we know we've been washed clean, washed pure by his work there, then I'm going to live a life of purity. We'll, we'll build on that idea next week, but I'll just tear it up there. I'm going to live a life of purity because that is who I am. It's not who I need to be through external religion. See, God's grace does good. Legalism, we're told, is makes us unfit for anything good. Now, as I draw to a close, you might be wondering, well, what on earth does this mean for us? I mean, as I look out, not many of us are elders, not many of us are false teachers, at least I hope not. But remember, as Paul wrote this letter um, to Titus, he, he cc'd in, he copied in all the churches on Crete. So they're sort of looking over Titus's shoulder as he's reading it, if you like. And Paul wants them to know what he's written here. So here are a few implications for us. Firstly, for the Tituses. I hope you see we need people like Titus. People who can oversee mission over a large area. People who have the authority to appoint and ordain trustworthy ministers. People who have the authority to discipline dodgy ministers. Now, throughout most of the world today and throughout most of church history, we call these guys bishops. Now, when I say that word in, church, in evangelical churches, it's almost like a swear word. We think, oh, bishops, oh, no, they're all terrible. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sure enough, many are unfaithful, and that's, that's a great sadness. But we need men in this role. We need men to do this job which Titus is doing. So we should pray for Bishop Rob, he's just up the road. We should pray for um, Bishop Rod Thomas, he's an evangelical bishop. 
And we should pray that more evangelical bishops are appointed into this role because we need Titus figures who are going to man the mission of England, if you like, who are going to train and ordain ministers who are going to discipline us when we go off, when we go off route. So we need Tituses. I hope you see we also need church elders. Hopefully that's abundantly clear. And you'll forgive me if, uh, for a passage like this today. I've largely been preaching to myself. Um, so please pray for me. Please pray for Tom when he comes. That we would remain faithful, not just in what we teach here, but, but, but at home as well. And pray also that we'd always remember it's not our church. It's not your church. It's God's church. But finally, some implications for us as a family, as a church family here. Friends, we're not so very different from Crete. Just like that island, our island is full of lies. And churches in this land, up and down the land, sadly, are full of lies. What does this mean for us, friends? You need to learn discernment. One of the, one of the most depressing things often for me after the service is... Um, Particularly in the morning, I, I ask people, how's the week been? And people want to tell me about perhaps the podcast they're listening to or the book they're reading. And it scares me how people who are godly Christians are often listening to utter nonsense. The Joel Osteens of the world and all that rubbish. Um, friends, we must learn dis- discernment. There is so much nonsense out there. People peddling lies, people peddling falsities for selfish gain. We must be discerning. If you um, want recommendations of good books, come chat with me. You'll perhaps go on our church website. We have a link there to a, a bookstore called Ten of Those. They sell you really good stuff, all of which is faithful. But we must be discerning. When you listen to a podcast, ask yourself, what do I know about this man who's speaking? And when, he, when you're moving to a new area and you're looking for a church, get to know the minister. Um, what do we know about this guy? Be discerning. Here's this other thing I want to challenge us with. The scary truth is, up and down our land, there are so many towns which don't even have elders. Or there are churches which have no shepherd. Or worse, they have wolves who are feeding on them. And friends, there are many here tonight, and I look at you, who are godly, who are trustworthy, and you know the trustworthy truth. If Satan's plan is to flood the land with lies... Well, God's counter-strategy here in verse 5 is to flood the land with truth. And that will only happen as trustworthy men step forward and say, you know what, I'm going to do this. That's why we make such a priority of teaching and training and sending here at St. John's. And I think each of us should ask that question. How can I, with the gifts I have and the person God's made me, how can I best use those for the glory of God for the rest of my life? And for some of you here, that will mean perhaps becoming a pastor-teacher of a church. And I pray that will be the way God uses us here. Well, let me pray for us. Father God, we pray that the truth of the gospel would ring out throughout the land and 